Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Good evening. Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. Uh, we're very blessed to be here at Holy Spirit Church this evening uh, with Father O'Donoghue, who has just a few opening words for us. Good evening. Welcome to Holy Spirit. We're very happy and very honored to uh, host an Archbishop today. Uh, and especially during this Easter season, uh, I know many of you have come out of, out of concern for the, the, the plight of Christians in, in the Holy Lands and the, the ancient roots of, of our faith uh, and the peoples who, who maintain that. And again, during this Easter season, part of our, our presence here is just a living prayer for, for Archbishop and the people he serves. Uh, that. Uh, well, the, the Easter joy, the renewal of life, uh, the hope it offers, especially in the midst of suffering, uh, that, uh, that sustain the people. And again, so such a, such a good number of people, I can't even see the, the end there. Uh, my eyes are pretty good. And so again, thank you very much, and especially the Archbishop, uh, thank you for, for coming and sharing what you will tonight with us. Thank you. Thank you very much, Father O'Donohue and the entire uh, community here at Holy Spirit for opening your doors this evening to the Institute of Catholic Culture. Just a few words about the Institute. I know we have a number of people here for the first time. We are a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching the faith. Simple as that. And doing so at no charge. What Christ has given, uh, given us freely, we are in the business of giving to others. Uh, we were founded about four years ago with a board of directors, um, with the goal of offering this education in parishes in the Northern Virginia area and beyond. We have a live broadcast now of our programs, and so we're going way beyond the Northern Virginia area. But uh, currently, we're, we are making use of about 13 parishes in the Northern Virginia area, offering our programs at no charge to attendees and no charge to the parish. Uh, because we believe that we have a crisis in the church, a crisis in adult faith formation. And as I've said many times, for those of you that have been with us, you cannot love what you do not know, and our salvation is dependent upon love. And so we desire to know our Lord and God, our best friend, our hero, as the Archbishop would say. We seek to know him better so that we might love him more and seek to follow him more closely. You have on your chairs a brochure there about the Institute of Catholic Culture. I will not go into too much detail, but only to tell you that this is the beginning of our third quarter of our curriculum. So if you look at the third quarter of the curriculum structure there, you will see a number of talks. This is one that was not actually posted in our curriculum. It's a special event for us when the Archbishop called me and said that he was available, of course, our curriculum has plenty of room. And so <laughs> we made the adjustment. Someone reminded me I forgot to introduce myself. So I, there's not much to say except I'm Deacon Sabatino. I'm the founding director of the Institute. But someone more important that I didn't mention is uh, someone that just about two years ago 
uh, was here at the Institute, my lovely wife, who went into labor while, while, we were, while we were having a program. She is here again with us this evening, pregnant with our fourth child. Today is her due date. <laughs> and she informed me that she had her first major contraction while we were having dinner this evening. So, if you don't see me here at the end of the evening, it may be another one of those Institute of Catholic Culture nights. Our speaker this evening was born in 1939 in Upper Galilee in Palestine to a Palestinian Christian family. Ordained a Catholic priest in 1965, Archbishop Shakur was the first Israeli Arab to graduate from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem where he received a master's degree in Bible and Talmudic studies in 1968. In 1971, he obtained a PhD in ecumenical theology at the University of Geneva. In February 2006, he was consecrated as Archbishop of the Melkite Catholic Church of Haifa, Akko, Nazareth, and all of Galilee. He is the author of the book Blood Brothers, which has been translated in over 20 languages, and the book We Belong to the Land. Archbishop Shakur has been awarded many prestigious prizes around the world for his work and has been nominated three times for the Nobel Peace Prize. He is an internationally recognized author, speaker, and advocate for peace in the Middle East. More importantly to me, uh, when I read his book, he kept me up one night till the early hours of the morning, and I will always remember a beautiful phrase that he recalls in his book as he was in the hills of Galilee, uh, recalls the relationship which he had with his God and Savior, Jesus Christ, his hero, his hero. And I'll always remember that because Christ is our hero and he's our closest, closest friend. Please join me in welcoming Archbishop Elias Shakur. On the last picture you have seen, John did not mention that there is an old man with an old woman standing together. These were my father and my mother. My father had the privilege once to go to Rome and meet with the Pope. And he brought back a beautiful picture of him with the Holy Father. And that picture is hanging in my kitchen. When people like you come over, they ask me, who are these two gentlemen? I always respond, answer, this is the Holy Father with the Pope. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great privilege for me to stand in your presence. I wish that children in Galilee, the Palestinian Arab Christians in Galilee, would be standing beside me here and see what a beautiful face is America. For us, it's not that what we see every day. We have this distorted image of you. We know about the terror that goes around the United States. 
People use their guns to kill others. Children kill their mates in the schools. And we know that America is an exporter of movies of very bad quality. <laughs> we know that America has so much money and it's the main exporter of weapons to the Middle East and mainly to Israel. We have a distorted image of you. We cannot imagine that you are here, Americans. It is beautiful. May God bless America because of what you are. I am very privileged to be with you here, but I am also very disturbed because I am not going to speak with you about the Talmud and about the Bible. I'm going to speak with you about a conflict which is going on between Palestinian Arabs and Israeli Jews. Whenever I mention anything about any of these two nations, it's like taking a knife and moving it in a lively wound. It is painful and it raises up contradictions and opposition. I am sorry. One thing I want to say. If there is any Jew here, I want you to know that I love you. I do love you. I don't like what they do to us in Israel. It's very bad. It's very horrible but has never been a question whether I love you or not. I would give my life if any Jew would be threatened to be killed or persecuted because he is a Jew. I'm not coming here to the village, neither the Jews nor the Palestinians. But this is my story. This is my history. I need to deal with it. And that's why I came from so far away, almost 17 hours in the air only to come and see you. If I had to travel two days in the air to come and see you, it's worth it. I am confused how to, to start to answer the question, who is right and who is wrong? is a legitimate uh, question. To ask the question, is there hope in the future for these or those, is a good question. And you are entitled to ask me, what are you coming to do in America, Father Shakur? What is your target in America? What do you want? Ah, that's an excellent question that I will answer at the end of my humble talk with you. You heard everything that was said by John and by the deacon. It's like a long eulogy. I'm still alive. <laughs> well, allow me first to introduce myself. I am not born the bishop or what they call me a peacemaker. I don't know why. 
It's a good name. I am not all of that. I'm something very different. I introduce myself so that you know to whom you have to deal with. Well, I am a Palestinian, a proud Palestinian. I have no bombs whatsoever. <laughs> I never carried any kind of weapon. I'm a Palestinian Arab, which means my mother language is this very easy to learn Arabic language. <laughs> you heard yourself laughing. I'm not astonished. After all, you are Americans. You're not very well known to know languages. <laughs> Didn't you even have a president who hardly could, could speak correct English? <laughs> this is your problem. We forgive you for that. <laughs> but believe me that Arabic is a very easy language. And if those who do not believe, I hope there are many. You're invited to come and visit me back home. I will take you to these children you saw in the picture. They all speak Arabic. <laughs> if children can speak Arabic, why can't you? <laughs> there are many reasons. I have learned 11 languages. And I feel sorry not to have learned some more languages when my memory was still fresh. Now it's all done for me. It's too late. <laughs> Palestinian Arab. I'm also a Palestinian Arab Christian. Do not be shocked if the Archbishop that I am would tell you the truth that I was not born Christian. And thank God for that. Thank God. I was not born Christian. I don't know what about you, ladies and gentlemen. Were you born Christians? Or you were like me? I was born a baby. <laughs> and only a babe. But I was born with a birth certificate. I was created on the image and with the likeness of almighty God himself. Not more, but not less either. I became Christian after I was born a baby. And I became Christian not long ago. For us Palestinian Christians, we count time in a different way than you do. You have put this engine in our hands. It's a damn engine that has divided our time into seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years. My goodness, that's too much for us. We still live close to the land. We still believe and feel history in a different way. 1,000 years for us are like one day before the Lord. So what are 2,000 years? It's the day before yesterday that my compatriot, Jesus Christ, was hanging around with our boys and girls, with our men and women. He was sharing our weddings, our funerals. 
he was enjoying our weather, our clouds, our flowers. My goodness, he took all of that and made of them the parables of the kingdom of heaven. I hope you have that book of those parables at least once in your hand. If you don't know the title, I tell you, it's called the gospel. He was walking around the Sea of Galilee, like when you go there walking with the groups as pilgrims. And he saw some uh, very successful gentlemen. He said to one who was repairing his nest, Hey, Peter, come on, abandon that, and come follow me. Be careful. If you go to the Sea of Galilee, and you would be walking around, he might ask you to come and follow. I know if he would do that physically, you would not follow. And if he insists, you would call the police. Peter did not call the police. He followed. Andrew the same, Philip the same, the others so. And he has chosen 12 men who accompanied him till the day when he was risen. And for those Greek Orthodox and Greek Catholics present here, I can greet you with the greeting of Easter, Christ is risen. Are you all Greek Catholics? <laughs> How nice to be with you. After he was risen, he commanded his disciples to stay in Jerusalem till he would send them the gift of the Father. You know that. And 50 days after his resurrection, he started sending them the gift of the Father. What did he send them first? Sorry? You said the Holy Spirit. I don't know where from did you have this information. It's wrong. He did not start sending them the Holy Spirit. Read your Bible. He started sending on them his rih, ruho, ruach. His wind, his strong wind, he stormed their minds so that they understood that there is a divine banquet around the Lamb of God in heaven and there are some who are invited. Who are invited to that divine banquet? Please help us to make that known. It was not the Jews. The Jews are no more invited. It is not the Christians either. It's too early for the Muslims. Who is invited? They understood that those invited are only and exclusively man and woman. Every man, every woman without any exclusion. What do you do with the chosen people, the Jews, who believe they have to be always exceptional somewhere? will ask them, are you men and women? If they say yes, remind them that they are invited as warmly as you are. If they say no, we are not men and women, 
you face a serious problem with them. <laughs> the problem that I face every day in Israel when I am in contact with the Jews, and that happens every day several times. After that, the Lord sent to his disciples the Holy Spirit in the form of tongues of fire. And they became bold. They lost all kind of fear. They went outside preaching something revolutionary that we are called today still to implement because we're far away. We went to the moon, but we have hard time going to our neighbor. They went out, started preaching to everybody on Temple Mount. You know what? There is no more privilege for Jew against Gentile. There is no privilege for man against woman, for Lord against slave. Why is that? And they told us, it is because you are called to become adopted children of God, even you Americans. <laughs> Isn't that marvelous? They were gathered 120 men, all of them from Galilee. I am a man from Galilee. We love that. We are proud of that. These were my ancestors. It is that day that I became Christian. And who were those ancestors of mine? Some among them were Jewish. Some others were Greeks. Some others were Romans. Some others were Arabs, as we read in the Acts of the Apostles. And there was no American there yet. <laughs> it was too early for you, brothers and sisters. I'm a Palestinian Arab Christian. I did not convert to Christianity from Islam. It's the contrary that happened. Most of Palestinians and Middle Easterns converted from Christianity into Islam. So when you meet me, don't ask how does Mecca look like. <laughs> I'm a Palestinian Arab Christian, and I am also as strongly a citizen of the state of Israel. I travel with Israeli passport. I would never accept to make any segregation between my four affiliations. I'm a citizen of Israel, but I'm sorry to say the truth. I'm not a citizen like any Jew might be a citizen. I'm a citizen, second-class citizen. I'm an underclass citizen. My passport number begins with zero two. I'm a zero two human being. While your neighbor Jew, if decides to go tomorrow to Israel, as soon as he lands there, he will receive zero one. Good for him. I'm not happy with zero two. I can also accept zero one. Otherwise, I invite all the Jews to be like me, zero two. Because all the time we are zero one and zero two, we risk to annihilate each other. 
we need to be equal in front of God and each other. I'm a citizen of the state of Israel. I wanted to put a kind of order of priority in my affiliations. What am I first? Can I be first and above all a citizen of Israel? I could not agree with myself because I have a problem with Israel. I am older than Israel. Israel is 67 years old. I am 73 years old. I did not immigrate into Israel at my early age. I was in my country, Palestine, when most of that country was changed into the state of Israel. And then started the plight of my people. The very, very big ethnic cleansing that caused that the Palestinians become the Jews of the Jews, experiencing for the first time the experience of the diaspora. Hundreds of thousands became refugees in the surrounding Arab countries. As much as those who were in the Arab countries, many did not want to go as far. They decided to stay in the territory of Palestine, which was not occupied by the Jews. And they built the refugee camp around Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Bejala, Jericho, Hebron, uh, Nablus, and so on. And a very small minority, the poorest among the Palestinians, decided spontaneously to stay inside the state of Israel in their home, in their villages, no matter what. They said without saying that loudly, we prefer to die at home than to live as refugees elsewhere. And these are called the Palestinian Arab citizens of Israel. Or the Palestinians of 1948. And we are now 1,500,000 Palestinian Arab citizens of Israel. We love Israel. We hate what they do to us. We don't like that. Among these Palestinian Israelis, there is still a small Palestinian Christian minority. We count now 150,000 Palestinian Christians in Israel. We represent 25% of Palestinian Christianity. Where do we find the other 75%? We can find them in Lebanon, in the refugee camps, in Syria, in exile, or in self-exile. And this is my main concern as Archbishop, how to slow down, if not to stop completely the immigration of our Christians from Galilee, from inside Israel, to all over the world, not exclusive to America. To give you an example, 25 years ago, Bethlehem 
was 60% Christians. Now, Bethlehem is between 8 and 9% Christian. That is the percentage that is there. And we are extremely concerned. We love to see you come there. We understand that you like to go and visit the Holy Sepulchre. Have a good visit. But don't stay long inside the Holy Sepulchre. It's stinky. <laughs> and the light is very, very dim. And if you are tempted to stay long, the Franciscan monk or the Orthodox monk will push you out. Go out, others are waiting. I wish that you do not stay in the Holy Sepulchre. Get out as fast as you can. You are not made to live in sepulchres. Not even in Holy Sepulchres. I invite you to get rid of your own self-made sepulchres. Your own close-mindedness on yourself. Get out from that. Go to the freedom of having no sepulchre whatsoever. Leave the sepulchre of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's the only place in the world, ladies and gentlemen, where it is written officially. You can't read that. It's covered with wax. And it's also in Latin. Who understands Latin today? <laughs> except we crazy bishops and the cardinals. What is written is a message to you. Reads like that. He is not here. So what are you doing where he is not? <laughs> Get out the soonest possible. And go to Galilee. Down to Galilee. Where you can walk alongside the Lord. But even in my Galilee. Don't stay long. We have enough problem alone. Jews and Palestinians. <laughs> Don't come to add one more problem. <laughs> Continue your way back home here in Washington or Virginia. Where is your Galilee here? Go. Someone is waiting to have your attention. Someone is waiting for you to receive forgiveness or to ask for forgiveness. It's here your holy Galilee. You know what makes our land holy land? It's not Jesus Christ. He was there 2,000 years ago. And he's gone. I never met with him there. <laughs> what makes our, holy, our land holy land is you, ladies and gentlemen, who come to look for some thing that remained from Christ, who come to walk in the footsteps of that Christ. You turn our land, our stones, in very holy places. I'm a Palestinian, Arab, Christian, citizen of Israel. I remember the first image I had about the Jews was given to me by, by my father when he gathered us in 1948 and said, Children, within few days, we might see Jewish soldiers coming to our village. Be not scared. 
we have machine guns, but they do not kill. These are survivals from a satanic plan in Europe, which aimed at annihilating all of them. And thank God, this satanic plan was completely destroyed. Some of these survivals might be coming to our village. We need to show them that somewhere on this planet, they are welcome, very specially because they are our blood brothers. The title of my first book. Our blood brothers, because father continued, they also claim to be the children of the same Iraqi citizen who is our forefather, Abraham. Wow. Three days later, the soldiers started coming to the village. They had heavy machine guns. They did not molest anybody. They did not kill anybody. They were so kind. Father have slaughtered a Paschal lamb to make a banquet for their arrival. They ate our food. They slept in our beds, and we slept on the roof of our beds. In Galilee, it's very agreeable to sleep on the roof. Don't do that here. <laughs> you would be frozen in the morning. And we stayed in that situation 10 days. After that, the officer of the army called all heads of families, including my father was there, to come and see him. And his orders were very clear, go back home, take wife and children, lock your homes, you come, deliver me the key, and you go away for two weeks. And this is a military written promise, within two weeks you will come back. What can simple peasant do except obey the orders of a mighty military army? They executed the orders. And I remember I left with my family carrying on my shoulder a small blanket. That's all I could carry with me. And we walked almost one hour far from the last house of the village to a hillside where we had our lands. For us children, it was really a paradise. The whole day we spent it in climbing trees, up and down, eating figs, almonds, grapes, whatever you want, catching birds. What could we have better than that? For one week it was okay. But for the second week it became boring, problematic. The heads of families gathered and went back again to see the same officer of the army whose name was Manu. My father was with them. They went to see the army. And we waited for them to come. But they never, ever came back. Never, ever came back. I'm telling you my story, ladies and gentlemen. We did not know what happened to them. Till three months later, we knew that they were loaded onto military trucks like cattle and driven far away from northern Galilee to the neighborhood of the city of Nablus 
and there they receive the orders. This land does no more belong to you. Cross the borders, leave, go wherever you want, never come back. You will be killed before you trespass the borders. And they started their Via Dolorosa, their way of suffering. They went down to the Jordan River, crossed the Jordan River. Don't ask me with which kind of boat did they use to cross the river. Because the Jordan River is the only river I know about in the world, about which there was much more ink spilled to describe it than there is water in it. <laughs> you can cross it very, very easily. And they started their way of suffering went up Mount Gilad, up to Amman. Amman, which was a very poor, dirty, poor village. Now it's one of the most beautiful capitals of the Middle East. They could not find shelter there. They went north to Damascus, the hospitable Damascus. Some were stuck there, and others continued to Beirut in Lebanon. And they were all stuck in those country, countries, in the Arab countries. They became the famous refugees. We deplore the fact that few years ago, a president of the United States came to our country. And he had the courage to say, Palestinian refugees will have no hope to return. They have to manage wherever they can, as they can. Thank you, Monsieur, Mr. W. Bush. I know what's the problem with dear George W. Bush. He often speaks on behalf of God. He climbed such a high tree, and he forgot that he is just a bush. <laughs> we never received this message, that kind of message. My father was able to infiltrate back through the northern borders with Lebanon, and he found us in a nearby village, sheltered in a room that was abandoned by its inhabitants. They fled to Lebanon, and we were 11 persons living in a room that was 30 square meters. My father always reminded us, do not fall into temptation of using violence to achieve anything good you want. Because violence brings more violence. With weapons you cannot make friends. But he did not stay quiet. He invited all the men who remained there from the village, and they went to the Israeli High Court of Justice. They filed a case against whom? Against the State of Israel. The first ever case to be risen against the State of Israel. They asked the right to return. And the resolution was very clear. These are peaceful people. They have a written promise from the army. They have the right to return. The army opposed. 
second recourse to the, the, the High Court of Justice in 1950. Second resolution in our favor. Army still opposed vehemently. 1951, third recourse and third resolution in our favor. We did not mind what the army or other want. We took our luggage and walked the distance of five kilometers to reach our abandoned closed homes. And when we reached about the neighborhood of the village, we saw airplanes coming we did not know where from, coming suddenly and started raining bombs, dynamites, and explosives on our homes, on our church, and everything was put to the ground. We stood there and we wept like children. And that place has been called, till today, the Bar'am people wailing wall. If you come there, you want me to go and show you, I would be most honored to do that. My father was a man of God. He believed in God so strongly. He was a man of his church. He venerated his church more than anything else. Maybe because of that, he wanted that one among his children becomes a priest. It became an obsession for him. So he sent my elder brother to Jerusalem, to our major seminary. He stayed there three months and did not want that business. He escaped. <laughs> my second brother threatened to commit suicide if father would send him to seminary. My third brother left home, crossed the Jordan River and went to far away, very remote relatives in Jordan to hide. He did not want to be a priest. He never accepted to come back before father promises officially that he will send him, send not him to seminary. Who remained? The youngest. And I was the youngest. And my father delivered me to the bishop, holy bishop. That's how I was placed with the orphans. This is the only place the bishop had for people who want to become priests. I finished my elementary school studies in Haifa, my high school in Nazareth, and the bishop needed to send us to higher seminary to study theology, philosophy, Bible, all these big studies. We had our major seminary in Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, which was under Jordanian authority. We needed a visa to enter Jordan, and we needed a visa to exit Israel. The bishop wrote the applications, and the answer did not wait to come. Israel said, we will never allow our young Arabs to go study in the Arab country of Jordan in Jerusalem and come back to us contaminated with Arab ideology. And Jordan, I don't know, it was not something agreed with uh, between themselves. Answer the same thing. We'll never allow already contaminated Arabs with Zionism to come to our country. 
the bishop had no choice but to send us either to Rome or to Paris. And thank God thousand times that the bishop opted for Paris, not for Rome. <laughs> That's how I studied for six consecutive years in Paris, in the Sorbonne and the Institut Catholique. Oh my God, what did we not study six years? Everything, Bible, church history, sacraments, angelology, mariology, psychology, all the jizzy. <laughs> now I can tell you very simply, I'm the Archbishop now, what can they do against me? I have forgotten everything. <laughs> but everything. I still remember two points. I cannot forget them. First, God does not kill. Nowhere. No one. Impossible. And God is love. All the rest is commentary for me. I became priest in 1965. And my bishop said to me, you are a priest now. You need the parish. I said, yes, sir. He said, I send you for one month to the village of Eveline. You will stay there, and after one month, we'll meet again and discuss your status and decide where you would be for a permanent time. What did I say? Yes, sir. I was 24 years old. Too early to be able to look in the eyes of the bishop or to answer the bishop or to question him. And my bishop was not anyone. He was a very majestic one. Yes, sir. I drove my Volkswagen that I received from a German family for my priest ordination. It was a Volkswagen Kafer bug. And drove and drove from Haifa looking for Abilene. Suddenly I saw the Sea of Galilee. I said, no, that can't be. They told me Abilene is closer to Haifa. I asked at the gas station. And they said, gentlemen, you are so far away. Go back. I went back. I was able to find Abilene. I was looking to come home to find the parish house, to find a bedroom, an office, a small kitchenette at least, or the minimum, a toilet. <laughs> but there was absolutely nothing of that. There was the room of the church, that's half this, this space here, standing in the air like that. Doors were half destroyed, the cats could go in the, between the piece of the wood of the doors. So I said, well, goodness, what can I do? I had only my Volkswagen bug. I slept the first night in my Volkswagen bug. I said, one month, that's nothing if 1,000 years are like one day before the Lord. So what is one month? It's no time. I ended by sleeping six months in the Volkswagen bug. Please, I see your heads. Do not pity me. It was very comfortable for me. You know why? 
because in those times, I was not as huge as I am now. <laughs> I was less than half of I am. I could fit in. Today, I would not accept to sleep one night in the ferry of Wagenbach. I started to ask myself, what can I do? One month will end very, very soon. I did not know what I know now by practice that my bishop, like many, many, many bishops, if not all of them, they normally have a very short memory. <laughs> they forget so easily. And my bishop forgot me there. And I forgot myself. I waited 38 years <laughs> to see the end of that month come. I don't know which, whether that was a grace of God or that was a punishment, but I delight myself to remember these years of difficulty. I needed to do something. I said, I will start. Meanwhile, the bishop was remember me. But before he remembered me, he was translated into glory. Good for him, better for us. It's not bad to wish to a bishop to be translated into glory. Please wish me that. <laughs> I decided to do the simplest thing possible. Since our community was a very young community, 75% of our people were under 27 years old and 50% were under 14 years old. I said to myself, our future in this country should dialogue with the Jews. We need to have an exceptional education to be able to face the Jews, whether for peace or for war. Education is something we cannot pass over. I tried first to visit all the homes of the village, the Muslim houses as well as the Christian houses. I asked them, if you have any extra books that are thrown away, give them to me. I will repair them and distribute them to our children. I collected over 1,000 volumes from different families. We repaired them and we started redistributing them to children. I did not know that I was starting without knowing the first Arab public library in Galilee that will come 20 years later, the large library of Mar Elias educational institutions. I said, what can I do simultaneously with that? Well, I will organize summer camp for our kids. And the minimum number of children I decided for was 500. Instead of 500, my assistants registered 1,127 children. What to do? First come, first served? That is good principle, but I cannot apply that because I never forgot that I am coming from a very, very poor family. 
our lands were confiscated, our home was destroyed, we were left with the clothes we have on us. I never went anywhere, first, second, or last. Everywhere where I went, I always went after the last. So I could not reject these children. I canceled all the expensive activities and welcomed all these children. To make a long story short, the last summer camp, 1980. We became very famous, ladies and gentlemen. Everybody in Galilee knew about Father Shakur's summer camps. That year, it's like a fiction, we registered over 5,000 children. And we are men from Galilee. When we are 5,000, we know that we are entitled to a miracle of multiplication of bread. <laughs> we cannot do without that. And I needed that miracle three times a day for three consecutive weeks. It's not a normal Jesus Christ. It's a super Jesus Christ that I needed. <laughs> I myself, I confess, I never made any miracle. I don't know how you do that. Maybe, Deacon, you can teach me later on, <laughs> if you can. I spend hours praying, what can I do, Lord? 5,000 children of God need to eat and to drink. That evening, after praying hours after hours, I said, your children are coming from 30 different villages. Why don't you call the mothers of these children, each group in their own village. And that's what I did. 30 meetings for the mothers of these children. And I asked each group of mothers to send us 10 mothers a day. And here was young Abuna Shakur with 300 most beautiful mothers <laughs> coming to prepare sandwiches and drinks for 5,000 children of God. They did it. <laughs> they did it like a game. They did it with such pleasure. They made the miracle. You would say, you must have a very beautiful Christian community. It is true. I love our Christian community. But these ladies who came every day, the majority among them was not Christian. The majority was Muslim. And they made the miracle. That reminded me that we Christians do not have the monopoly of doing good. And we don't have an exclusive control over the activities of the Holy Spirit. That was the last summer camp. The dignitaries in the village started pressuring me. We don't want your summer camps. Goodness, why not? They said, but we need something much more important. I said, what do you need? They said, we need a high school for our children. We don't have a high school. I studied the situation. 8,500 inhabitants only 
90 teenagers went to school every year, among them five to eight young girls. And that was an alarming situation. We will never be able to face the Jews. We need to have education. I decided to go along with the villager. I will build for you a high school. We'll see. God will help us. And as a good citizen of Israel, a law-abiding citizen, I applied for the building permit. You cannot build with Israel without building permit. And since we cannot have the building permit, we can shout to God to help us build something that does not need building permit, and that's impossible. I applied for a building permit, and three months later, the answer came. Denial. I took this denial and said to myself, what do you need, Elias, to have a high school? Do you need a building or a building permit? I decided I needed the building. The authorities needed the building permit in order to stop us from doing anything good for our people. So I started the construction, ladies and gentlemen, without building permit, and K surah surah. <laughs> we laid the foundation, went up with the walls, when the police arrived. He was very nervous. He said, show me your building permit. I said, sir, you know that I don't have a building permit. He said, yes, I know. But how can you build without building permit? I said, sir, I never build with building permit. Sorry. I always build with sand, cement, steel, stones, and so on. The police was exasperated, was utterly angry. He said, you don't do like that in a civilized country. I said, my dear friend, I wish you were civilized enough to give me a building permit. <laughs> if I build without building permit, it is just in order to help you to become more civilized. <laughs> and here I want to remind you, American friends, you have to remember always, when you face the police for any reason, Remember always that the Israeli police has something with the American police, with the German police, with the Palestinian police. Always, unmistakably, behind the uniform, you have a human being, not a monster. The problem is the art of how to strip the police from his uniform and to see the human being. This was always my target. The police was so angry, he said, stop arguing. You ask someone to court, and you stop building immediately. Okay, sir. He went down the hill and went his road. When he disappeared, we resumed the work. <laughs> and I went to court. It was not easy. You know, till I became Archbishop seven years ago, I was 37 times in court, always for building permit. <laughs> it was an excellent opportunity for me to build relations with judges, staffers, and all these 
big people who became friends, very good friends to me. I can tell you stories upon stories. How did they help without saying anything? I'll tell you one of these stories, but after words. Nine months after we started the construction, the first building you saw in the pictures here was ready for the children without electricity. And so what? We never had electricity in our history. Without telephone. That's not needed because we had our Arab telephone. Mouth to mouth to ear. <laughs> and our telephone is never out of order. It's always working. We started with 80 children, aged 13, 14 years old, four teachers, one lady, and three gentlemen. The building became a school. 20 years later, in the year 2000, my God, I was so privileged to welcome every morning over 4,500 children. The largest Arab and Christian school in Galilee. I will tell you a story that has to do with you. You have to be patient, please. Because I traveled almost 28 hours to be privileged to stand in your presence. 1986. We had still one building for maximum 350 children. But we registered over 700 children that year. We have no space, impossible. I decided then to build a gym with some workshops and few more classrooms. And I presented our drawings to have a building permit. They told me, your drawings are perfect this time, Mr. Shakur. Surely you will have your building permit. But bear with us. Our Israeli bureaucracy is so slow. I understood that their decision is going to be a political decision rather than anything else. So what remained to me is to leave them in peace working with their slow bureaucracy and get myself busy in fast construction. <laughs> we laid the foundations, went up with the walls, poured the concrete of the first floor when the police arrived. <laughs> that was one year later. He said, you don't have your building permit. I said, no, I don't have it. Help me to have it. He said, it's not my business. You stop the construction, and you are summoned back again to court. If you don't stop the construction, tomorrow we'll put you in prison. That was far too serious to go against. We stopped the construction. It's a fairy tale. And we started digging underground rooms in the rock. <laughs> we dug three big classrooms. If ever you are there, Ask to see them. Meanwhile, I was knocking on the doors of every Israeli officer, begging them to help me have the building permit. I said, it's a bureaucratic thing. They need to go quickly with their formalities. 
they all listened to me. No one moved one finger to help. I started understanding I am now no more in the promised land as much as in the land of promises. <laughs> Empty promises. It took me six years knocking on the door. My fingers here while they were hurting. Six years knocking on the doors, begging people to help me have the building permit without any result. I got totally despair. Then suddenly I got an idea. Boy, isn't that true that the shortest way to reach the heart of Jerusalem passes through Washington, D.C. <laughs> I bought a flight ticket and flew to National Airport. You know that, right? And what's good is that airport is inside the city, is not in the neighborhood. I decided simply to pop in to the residence of your then Secretary of State, James Baker. I landed at National Airport, rented a car, and drove to Vauxhall Road number 17, where the Bakers were living. Parked the car and went to the entrance door. <laughs> I knocked. Secretary of State was not at home. His wife, Susan Baker, bless her heart, came herself, opened the door, which is most unusual. Such ladies never open their doors. But she was expecting some more American ladies to come in. She opened the door, and she saw me. <laughs> I don't look like a lady. And I don't look like a normal American man. She was shocked. She immediately said, who are you, mister? I said, madam, I am another man from Galilee. Wow. <laughs> and she asked me, but do you have an appointment with us? I said, madam, we men from Galilee, we never make appointments. We make appearances. <laughs> you would not believe that if it not happened to me personally, and thank God the bakers are still alive. <laughs> she was utterly confused. She did not know what to do with me. She told me later, I could not kick you out, and I did not want to let you in. <laughs> in fact, she invited me to the right side door, which was giving right away to the kitchen. Oh, they have a very beautiful kitchen. I could spend all my life there without needing anything. But I don't know why Susan Baker, bless her heart, decided to give me something to drink that I found horrible. <laughs> How can you drink that, Americans? She decided to give me a glass of iced tea. <laughs> well, we don't blame you for loving that. 
but keep it for yourself, please. I swallowed that iced tea. Back home, we have a problem even drinking hot tea. Never comes to our either mind, drink iced tea, boy. No, that's not healthy, but that's okay. I swallowed it in less than a minute when Susan Baker was walking me out to the exit door saying, I'm sorry, I can't receive you longer. I am busy with 20 American ladies. Uh-huh. She said, we are having just one hour Bible study. Oh. I said, that's great, ma'am. What kind of Bible study hour you have? And she said to me simply, we are having a look on the so-called Sermon on the Mount. Oh. I looked at her, I said, good luck, madam. I pity you. She said, why do you pity me? I said, sorry, what will you be able to understand from that Sermon on the Mount? It was not written in your English language. And it's not an American who has written it. Good luck. And Susan Baker, bless her heart, understood immediately. And she said, I see. Can you help us understand it better? Oh, mama mia, what could I expect more? I surely said, yes, I will try. This time I was reintroduced. No more to the kitchen for iced tea, but to the living room with the other very gentle, lovely ladies. My brother, sisters, it took me two hours to explain to these gentle ladies what meant for me the eight first verses of the Sermon on the Mount, that you call them in your English translations sometimes the blessings, some other times the beatitudes, and when some American want to be extravagant, they call them the be happy attitudes. <laughs> what a heresy. <laughs> the book of George Shur. Two hours? You agree that that was a very long appearance. I ended by inviting these ladies to go home and convince their husbands to get their hands dirty for peace and justice for Israel and for the Palestinians. And in case they refused to get their hands dirty, one or two fingers would be more than enough <laughs> to bring us peace and justice. And I left two copies of my books, Blood Brothers, We Belong the Land, to Susan Baker and left her home to the hotel. And the day after, I took the plane back home. That's all I did in this big, beautiful Washington. I was sitting in my office in the school. My office is not an office. It's a corner of a building that was destined to be a toilet unit. <laughs> they did not fix the toilet facilities. They put a chair, a table, and a telephone for the president. I was called the president. Can you imagine? 
I laugh of myself when they called me that. The president of the school. I was sitting there and suddenly the telephone rang. Hello? Here is Susan Baker. Can I speak to Father Shakur? Yes, I am Father Shakur. Can we pray together, did she say? What do you think? Oh, I said, surely, why not? And we started praying together on the telephone. I never imagined that there will come a day in my life when I would be speaking to Almighty God on the telephone. <laughs> that never came to my mind. Because back home, we don't use the telephone to speak with God. We have apparently a direct line with him. <laughs> this operation repeated this twice, three times a month. Soon we became prayer partners. I ceased to be the Palestinian priest. I no more was anymore Mr. Shakur, Father Shakur, the priest Shakur. I became the prayer partner. I became the Abuna. This is the beloved name we give to our parish priest, Abuna. I became the Abuna for the bakers. I did not mention to you that more than once someone interrupted our prayer saying, you both listen to me. I want to pray now with you. It was your secretary of state, James Baker. I don't know where God has taken me, but may God be praised for his miracles. Three months later, I remembered that I did not go to Washington to drink iced tea. I did not go there to explain the Sermon on the Mount unless to speak with God on the telephone. I went to Washington because I wanted simply a building permit. I took the telephone, rang the bakers, Susan Baker was always ready to answer. Amazing lady. Yes, Abuna. Why do you call? I said, I need your help. If you don't help me now, you will need to come and visit me in prison very soon. She was alarmed. What's wrong? I said, I need you to help me have the building permit for my gym and for the classrooms. Ah, she said, don't worry. We'll do everything possible. Wow, everything possible. Much was possible for the American Secretary of State in that time, just after Gulf War I. She sat down and wrote a two-page type letter, waited for her husband to come in the evening, showed him the letter. He said, darling, you will not send this letter. You might create a diplomatic crisis between Israel and the United States, and we do not want that. After Gulf War I, Baker was able to build this impossible coalition with 160 countries, and he did not want to see it disintegrating for any reason. 
he took the letter from his wife, went to his study, and after half hour he called her, darling, could you come please? She came in, what is it? He said, do you agree to sign this letter with me? I will sign it with you. I will take two copies of, my, of Abuna's books and hand deliver them to Shamir, who was the Prime Minister of Israel. I promise you, Susan, I will not leave Shamir's office before having a written promise. Abuna will have his building permit in less than a week. I know that he stormed the office of Shamir together with a diplomat called Dennis Ross. <laughs> he got the paper. In less than a week, Abuna will have his building permit. And in less than a week, I got the building permit. <laughs> we continued the construction, finished the room, the, the gym. And one and a half years later, James Baker himself called me. Abuna, I am coming with Susan to visit you. I said, are you awake? He said, why? I said, what are you coming to do in a village with dirt roads? What are you coming to do in a village without electricity, without telephone? with water twice a week. What are you coming to do here? He said, I don't, ma, I don't care. I'm coming to visit you no matter what the situation is. And your Secretary of State with his wife came to visit us in the school. He did not do anything. He did not make any statement. We just went into the grotto. We dug with our hands and we prayed together in that grotto. And he left back home in peace. His visit was not left unnoticed. Six months later, the Israeli foreign ministry called me saying, Mr. Shakur, I am far from being Abuna for them. <laughs> Mr. Shakur, our foreign minister, was given the Nobel Peace Prize two weeks ago, and he decided to give one of his first lectures on peace and justice in your institution. Do you agree? What do you think? <laughs> Not only I agreed. I invited 1,500 Palestinian dignitaries from all over Galilee to come to the gym to listen to Shimon Perez, may God save him from all problems, speak about justice and peace. All these people were jammed in the gym, and I was alone outside waiting for the minister to arrive. He came, parked his car, his driver. I greeted him, and I was walking him into the gym while telling him the story of that gym. When I started mentioning the story of the gym, he said to me, interrupted me saying, please, Mr. Shakur, stop. I don't want to listen to any detail of your problem with that gym. 
I'm not coming so much to speak about peace and justice as much as to look with my eyes why did James Baker raise hell in Jerusalem? <laughs> you heard me well, ladies and gentlemen. Why did James Baker raise hell in Jerusalem? I call you Americans. I wish you do not hesitate to raise hell when hell needs to be raised to protect the poor, to protect those powerless, those marginalized. Yes, do raise hell. Very special if you are Christians. You're not allowed to sit down watching how people suffer, how people are tortured, how are they deprived from food and clothes. Do raise hell. Never allow yourself to be a chameleon who takes always the color of the environment. Raise hell, please. And I will continue, I promise you, I will continue to raise hell. To ring the bells of justice and of brotherhood, of fraternity in Israel, so that we end Jews and Palestinians recognizing our own dignity on the face of the other. And that brings me to the last small paragraph. Why do I share with you all these stories? Your time is precious and I'm tired. It's because of two reasons. The first reason is very serious. It's because I believe in you. I believe that everyone among us here is able to make a change for the better around him or her. You are able to do that. You can do that. And the second reason, which is more important, I share these stories because of who I am. I am now a very well-known international beggar. <laughs> I'm sorry. A beggar. I beg you for favors. Do not say no. I need your help. If you agree to give me your help, that might contribute to save one Jew and one Palestinian from being killed. I need your help. I'm not asking for money, ladies and gentlemen. I never begged for money anywhere in the world. I know the importance of money. I respect money. The most important gift that was given ever to me was when I was building the last building in the school. An old American lady wrote me a letter saying, I read your books, I admire what you have done, and I identify with what you are doing. And that's why I decided, Mr. Shakur, to send you all my savings from last month. And in the envelope, there was a check for $10. All her savings. One of the classrooms of that building bears the name of Madame Sue, I don't remember what. She gave us all her savings 
brackets ten dollars. Thank God for her. So if I don't ask for money, what do I need from you, ladies and gentlemen? I need two things. I'm dying to have your friendship. I need your friendship. I'm ready to fly even three times from Israel to here to obtain your friendship. Do not refuse to give me your friendship. It's vital for me. I know that the majority, if not everybody, would say, yes, we give you our friendship. And as soon as you'll be going home, you will forget about Shakur, about friendship, about everything. But I need also something else. I need your solidarity. And your solidarity means for me a lot. It is the acceptance of questioning all your convictions so far. I'm far from asking you to question your convictions with regards to personal interpersonal relations. It's your business or your money affairs or your business. But I think I am entitled, my dear brothers and sisters, to ask you to question all your so far convictions with regards to the Jews in Israel and to the Palestinians. What do I mean? You have many Jews around you in this city. Some of these Jews might be your friends. Some among your Jewish friends might be fanatical Jews, and that exists. We don't need more than that. Some among them might be pro-settler Jews who dream day and night how to get rid of my physical existence because they labeled me to be the terrorist as they were labeled to be the dirty Jews. And for the same reasons. If you have among your Jewish friends such Jews, please, for God's sake, in the name of your own dignity, do not give up on your Jewish friends. Continue giving them friendship. Support them, stand with them, help them. Even if you give them all the money of the United States, I will be only grateful for you. But a little bit less weapons might be better. <laughs> but to stand on the side of the Jews, which is very good. But why should you interpret that? as an enmity, antipathy, automatic against the Palestinians. The majority about of Americans do not know us. You know about us. And we know about some person. That means we don't know that person. We know the informant, not the one who is informed about. But in case you have read one or the other books about the Palestinians, in case you have been in the refugees camps in the West Bank, in Lebanon, Syria, everywhere in the Middle East, in case you have listened to one or the other stories of Palestinians, every Palestinian has a poignant story to tell about his suffering 
about his deprivation, about his marginalization, and they would all say to you with one voice, believe us, we are not a nation of terrorists. We are a terrorized nation. We are a terrorized nation. And if you enjoyed the hospitality of the Palestinians, which is a great hospitality, they love to give hospitality to others. And you decided to be on our side. Well, goodness, why not do it? Not only you do good, but for once you would be on the right side. <laughs> but brothers and sisters, if taking our side with Palestinians would mean for you to become antipathetic against the Jews, to start hating the Jews, or even to justify everything any Palestinian does because he's Palestinian, if that is your friendship to us, may I say officially, we do not need your friendship. We don't need it in that case. Because if you are one-sided for the ones against the others, what do you do to your generous person? You reduce yourself to become one more enemy, and we don't need any more enemies. We have been enough cruel against each other. We produce enough martyrs on both sides, and unmistakably, the martyrs on the one side are looked upon as being terrorists on the other side, and both are wrong. We don't need you to be one more enemy on any side. We have produced enough widows, enough orphans, thousands of handicapped children. We don't need more. What we need you to be is our common friend. Can you be that? Do you have the guts to go forward for it? Please welcome, I beg you. I am the international beggar who is kneeling and begging you. Do that. We need one more common friend. And my last statement. Please believe me that we Jews and Palestinians, I say we, because I, and I, I identify with my Jewish friends. And I cannot abstain from identifying with what I am as a Palestinian. I tell you, believe me, that we do not need anyone to come and teach us how to live together. We don't need that. Don't come with your science, with your uh, psychology, with your uh, subconscious to teach us how to live together. All what we need is to remember how we used to live together for centuries and centuries and centuries. We lived together for so many centuries. And I tell you, unless Israel and the Palestinians would realize that they have to put into parentheses the past 67 years. Consider them as an exception in their history which confirms the rule 
of living together, Israel would have no chance to survive. Neither would the Palestinians. And we want to live, we want to survive with our brothers, the Jews. Help us in that sense. And may God bless you. I thank you for your patience. May God bless you, bless America. Thank you. Thank you, brother. I love you. Thank you. I sincerely hope you were not applauding me. You were applauding the side of your conscience who was moved to go to action. And that's why I feel that we end our evening here, but we start our life outside, in our businesses, in our homes, in our society, to make of it a real human society for all humans. Thank you, God bless you. Thank you, Syed, uh, very much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.